0: Um, I don't want to here let's start. I I don't want to, um, to get into that. It's not the time but if you haven't heard you should make efforts to find out what he said today because um, he's done something once again that is unsettled an unsettled church and we're still in the middle of a you know, something of a what to call it a struggle um, after Novus Ordo. You know, when when Francis made when he put those strictures down concerning the traditional mass, the, um, and and the uh, Novus Ordo. So um, anyway, I think it's going to be a difficult time for a church, and I'm. Um, I'm asking personally for everybody um, to look into this, to take it seriously, to pray for our church, to pray for our Pope, to pray for us, um, and to constantly keep God in your heart, whatever it is you're doing. Um, So okay, a couple of things, business things, before we start. Um, The notes that you have from a table have got some correction or... I've made corrections on it, again. The notes online are have been edited. So I would ask you all to print out those notes. Toss these away when you go home tonight and print out a copy of your own. Um, because they're, they're corrected and they're a little bit more thorough. I've given you a reading list and I've edited it too and it's online. Um, I think... I'm, is, is there one there? Yeah. So the one back there sh- should be complete. And it's fairly thorough. And um, when some of you asked, you know, for me to recommend works, I didn't have much to say once how much my mind is going. But um, sitting down with Suzanne and going over this, s- suddenly all sorts of things came to mind. So for any of you who are going through an existential crisis <laughs> and who's going to be without reading, Um, you've got a really solid reading list here. And let me just put in a plug for some of them. If you were to get the complete short stories of um, any of the major writers that I put on the the collection, Flannery O'Connor, Eudora Welty, Catherine Ann Porter, Hemingway, Faulkner, Hawthorne, Conrad Joyce, any of those writers, you pick up their short stories, you're in good hands because they they are the major modern short story writers. So you're in good hands with that reading. I've also included essays from Alan Tate's collection of, of essays. They're extraordinary and I would urge you all, I, I don't know if they're available online, but if, if you read nothing else of Alan Tate's, if you read the angelic imagination and the symbolic imagination, you'd you would understand what the Catholic Church offers the world that the Protestant world cannot. The angelic imagination is in some sense a critique of the Protestant world and its angelic character. It's turning away from the body. And the symbolic um, imagination has to do with the analogies between our human body and the rest of creation. We saw that in Dante, even if you don't think of it that way. When we went through the Commedia together we went from an infernal world to a purgatorial world to a paradiso world. And in that world of paradise, we were, we were seeing a gradual transformation of the human body of the kind that we got hints of in the transformation. I hope that's clear. When, when um, Peter saw Christ transfigured, the transfiguration, he was given a glimpse of what will be at the resurrection of the body. Listen to me, everybody. When we die, we lose our bodies but Christ God made us with bodies. We're not angels. We were not, so when people start saying, oh, she's, she's so angelic, and I, I I have to grit my teeth whenever I hear that. We're not angels. Being angels doesn't make us better, for God's sake. Being good humans will make us, what we are. We're not angels. And the wonderful thing about Dante's Paradiso is we saw the glory of the human body, how it could pass through the sun, pass through the moon, not get burnt, we, we, we were given a foreglimpse of that in the transfiguration in the Bible. And we know it's part of our faith that at the final resurrection, we will receive our bodies back, transfigured. There will be a glory that we will experience then. So this whole stuff about theology of the body that is, you know, that I've been sort of pressing on you guys, and the Pope's comments on marriages, you know, mixed marriages and things like that, are, they go right to the problem of our age. And I'm going to say one more thing and then let it go. If you look at contraceptions, divorce, mixed marriages, trans, you see that every major piece of legislation, every movement in the modern world, is is an assault on the human body and marriage. Every one of them. If you go to mixed marriages, you've already, listened to me, because if you go to mixed marriages you've already got an, um, a prefiguration of trans because if a man can marry a man, he's turning a man into something that man is not. Christ said, man and woman, but what, what God has brought together, let no man sunder. In the, this is Christ, in the beginning it was man and woman. The whole salvation plan involves marriages and Christ, Christ as the groom, The position of the male in a marriage in its headship is in Christ. The man is the head. He shouldn't be a thug, he shouldn't be lording it, he's supposed to serve with some courage. The the position of headship of the man in a marriage is central by what Christ did. Christ is the groom calling the church to marriage. So marriages are in real trouble in our age, real, real trouble. Um, but our help is imaged in Christ and everything he does with his church. So remember that every, every piece of legislation is doing away with the nature of man, our sexual nature, both for men and women. It's destroying our nature, it's destroying marriages, and insofar as it's destroying natures, it's, it's what to do, attacking God, because God himself took on our nature. So, give some real thought to this. Anyway, those two essays in Tate's collection, the Angelic Imagination and the Symbolic Imagination, are amazing, just profound. Um, I can't tell you the help they've given me as a, as a teacher of literature, so. Anyway, you have the reading list, okay? Next week, we will take a little bit of time with um, um, Hemiway will finish um, The Old Man of the Sea next week. So plan to devote the, I don't want to press on it, plan to devote the whole class to Old Man. The following week we will do um, Billy Budd. So get an d- addition, um, don't worry about which one. The chapters are short, so when I go through it, I'll go through it by chapters, not page numbers. So It's a short, short work, it's like um, Old Man of the Seeds, very short, except the language, (laughs) it's not as readable as, Hemingway's easy, I mean, you can, a sixth grader can read Hemingway. Um, Melville's language is not easy, so it'll take some work. When you read it, because I'm not going to spend much time on it, when you read it, pay a close attention to the end. Does a miracle take place at the end or not? Just a basic question, okay. Okay, let's start. So... Old Man of the Sea will finish up, we'll do Billy Budd, and then we will start all the short stories. Um, most of them are by women. Um, I think you'll enjoy them, they're all good. They're, they're just really good stories. Um, let's start. Um, I'm going to stay with Robert Frost just for a little bit because he he's, um, he helps focus what's modern. And it's really important for us to see that so we know exactly what we're facing. I remember a priest saying to me when I was a younger man, he said, um, it helps to know your enemy, so you know what you're fighting, okay, so, so I hope this helps. Remember when we did the oven bird last week, if everybody will turn to your, the selection of Frost poems, Remember, it's about this bird, and I made the point that birds have been a major image um, topos, topic, theme, of almost all great poets, forever. Um, One of the poems that we'll read coming up is a poem by Richard Wilbur, who was a great American poet, who wrote a poem called All Those Birds. He's writing because almost every major poet has written poems about birds. Shakespeare did. Hopkins, The Wind Hover, we've read it, lots of them. Anyway, Frost knows exactly what he's doing. He's written a couple poems about birds. This is one of them, The Oven Bird. Remember, he describes this bird as singing a song that other birds don't sing. So there's a certain bird that has a prophetic um, power of vision to his song. He helps us feel things, see things that other birds don't. And you know that in that sense, the poet is a bird. He's a sick, Is every, I'm not pressing this. I'm not exaggerating. The poet is forever seen himself as a, as a singer, a bird, giving prophetic things. So when Frost writes this poem called The Oven Bird, he's got The Oven Bird on his mind. He's also got the poet because there are certain poets that will sing a song that other poets do not. This happens to be one of them, okay? And I don't want to go back and reread it, but I want to call your attention to the last line. The bird was ceased to be as other birds, but that he knows in singing not to sing. The question that he frames in all but words is what to make of a diminished thing. Now hold on to that. That's a Frost disclaimer. Hemingway did the same thing in Clean Well Lighted Place. You know what I mean by disclaimer? He offers something, while taking it away at the same moment. So he's half undercutting himself. Look at the lines above. We're not going to read that poem tonight, but I want you to see it. Um, "Birches" is one of his most beautiful poems. We're not going to sing it or read it tonight. But take a look at the end at the top of the page. Um, Earth's the right place for love. I don't know where it's likely to be better. Now, no. Frost carries a Christian sentiment. But he doesn't practice a Christian faith, not in any formal sense. Frost left California to go to um, New England to live there because he wanted to return where there was a culture that would help him develop as a poet. He went back to New England because New England had a culture and California doesn't. I think we all know that. I'm going to stop there. Susanna and I raised our kids there. It was a beautiful state. (laughs) Uh, we're not going back. Mm-hmm. Earth's the right place for love. I don't know where it's likely to go better. I'd like to go by climbing a birch. Because he talks about, here, listen everybody, hold on to this. The poem's about bending birches, making them flexible so they don't crack in winter, so they don't break in storms. He's talking about poetry. Swinging birches is a metaphor for what the poet does. So when you read birches, keep that in mind. So often what Frost is doing is writing about one thing when he's caught on his mind something else, and these two poems happen to be about poetry, okay? Birches and the Oven Bird. So he's he's talking about swinging birches, learning how to do to go just the right way and not overdo it or underdo it. He's describing exactly what the good poet does, right? Because you can overdo it, you can underdo it to do the right thing. By the way, that's one of the themes of Hemingway's *Old Man and the Sea*. Santiago has got, he's gone out too far and he knows it. It's one of the great things he does, but it's going to, it's going to make everything he does a trial. To be really careful what he does. That's as much about writing poetry as the story. I'd like to go by climbing a birch tree and climb black branches of snow white trunk toward heaven till the tree could bear no more. That's as close as Frost can get. Does everybody hear that? Do you understand what I'm saying? He's moving toward heaven. He's a modern. He's saying that's as much as we can do. It's like Hemingway in a clean well-lighted place. It's a a bar. It's a clean well-lighted. That's the closest to heaven in in a world of nada. And climb black branches up snow white trunk toward heaven till the tree could bear no more but dipped its top and set me down again. That would be good both going and coming back. One could do worse than be a swinger of virtues." Can you hear that note of disclaimer? He's half taking away with the ironic undercutting. It's what Hemingway did with all must have it. It's insomnia. Many must have it. you know. And Frost and the Ember. The question he frames is all but words is what to make of a diminished thing. What do we do in a modern world when nobody believes in God anymore. That's the world we've entered in these stories, okay? So the story, I mean the poem that I want to start with tonight, if you go to the beginning of Frost Poems, go to the very first page. If the other poems didn't knock your socks off, this one should, if you're reading it well. I've already told you I think, yeah? This poem has found its way onto Christmas cards. Christmas cards. Christmas cards. Okay, I'm going to read the poem and then I'm going to stop and even though we don't usually do this, I'm going to ask you what it means, okay? Stopping by woods on a snowy evening. Nice to see you. Good to see you. There's birthday cake Some I don't don't even ask. I'm, there's birthday cake and plenty of wine, so help yourself. Okay, you're among the aged tonight, and I'm actually one year older than I thought I was according to my wife. Here, Frost, "Stopping by Woods." Okay, everybody, pay attention. "Stopping by Woods" and this is Robert Frost, the great pastoral poet. You you all know what I mean by pastoral. Pastoral is agrarian country, a world of innocence. It's the return to Eden. So in literary terms, the pastoral world is a return to Eden. It's to recover that relationship that man once had with nature. No strains, no um, alienation. He's not estranged from nature. He's at home with nature. And you know the whole industrial modern world has put itself against nature. So when Frost is writing his poetry, he's taking us back to a pastoral, Edenic world. And this is one of his pastoral poems, okay? Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening. Whose woods these are, I think I know. His house is in the village, though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. My little horse must think it queer to stop without a farmhouse near, between the woods and frozen lake the darkest evening of the year. He gives his harness bells a shake to ask if there is some mistake. The only other sounds the sweep of easy wind and downy flake. The woods are lovely, dark and deep, but I have promises to keep, and miles to go before I sleep, and miles to go before I sleep. You should be able to work out the rhyme scheme right now. You know the first four lines are quatrain, the next four another. And then you've got a different rhyme scheme in, the, in the, um, the octave that follows. What's this poem about? And if I can just, so this, the, the speaker has gone for a ride. He's arrived at a, at, a, at a scene away from any farmhouses. The village isn't there. And the horse nods to ask if there's some mistake, which means the horse is aware of routine. the the speaker is used to, uh, he's got a social function, he's used to going to these farmhouses, but on this dark, the darkest evening of the, hold on, the darkest, remember every word in a poem counts. The darkest evening of the year, he stops and the horse shakes his head to ask, to give some indication, this mistake. To stop without a farmhouse near, between the woods and frozen lake, the darkest evening of the year. He gives his harness bells a shake to ask if there's some mistake. The only other sounds the sweep of easy wind and downy flake. The woods are lovely dark and deep." And notice, the whole the whole entire poem turns on, here we are again, on a conjunction. Remember sonnet 94 with Shakespeare? They that have the power to hurt and will do none. Now we've got a but. Um, the woods are lovely dark and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep and miles to go before I sleep. So that last thought is given emphasis because it's repeated. What is this poem about? (coughs) Sorry, did I hear something? Mike or Chuck? Chuck is that you? Go ahead. Sorry? It's about death. Yeah, what kind of death? Yeah, who's going to be the agent of this death? Sorry. Who's going to be the agent of this death? Agent, how's it going to? It's huh?
1: Itself.
0: Right. Is everybody... I've got a name, but I've got it. To... It's suicide. what, what had to
1: fifth grade better.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, just like a fifth grade teacher what she God it's really about death. Uh, listen but not. sorry you've got this pastoral description the poet comes to this pl- or the speaker where he's not gone before he looks at it and it says this is seductive he looks at the woods yes this, horse says this mistake the only other sounds the sweep of easy wind and downy flake the woods are lovely dark and deep but I have miles to go before I sleep it's very much about death this guy is looking at this field thinking about giving up his life and then he says but I have miles to go before I sleep and repeats it miles to go before I sleep
2: There's and nothing in- In the case he's going to kill himself, though, you can look at a thing and say, It will be nice to rest. I'll sleep when I'm dead. But it's, I mean, aside from the darkest evening of the year, okay, he's facing a crisis. So I'm arguing about this.
0: (laughs) Hey, what was your word?
2: Too pastoral. It is too much the return to Eden. That's what he's longing for, not the violence of suicide.
0: Anybody else? i am
1: what promises to just about and he not want to speak
0: up. It sounds like Santa Claus. Okay, it's promise. and miles to go before I sleep. I What does sleep mean here that he's repeated it twice? Why is sleep even an issue here? Remember, remember what I said. I mean, if, if, if you're, if you, if it's too hard to take my word, read a lot of Frost. Just read a lot. Um, some of the poems, I mean this, I'm going through Frost for this reason. Frost was a great poet, and people loved it. He, he was one of America's most popular poets because he's so easy to read. But when people found out what he was saying, he'd read, he'd, he's a serenity poet. He's not a dumb poet. This, he's a master at what he's doing. And he's, and he's offering constantly descriptions of a pastor. We'll go through a number of poems and it'll get easier to see. Maybe you won't doubt me so much then, but, uh, really? sorry?
1: Did he actually say, explained his poem
0: that way? Or Are you saying, is this Frost speaking about himself? I
1: was just wondering if after he wrote the poem, did he explain that that's what he was
0: talking about? Frost would never do that. Yeah, poets festival.
1: thought of it as I would love to s- just stop and take it all in, but unfortunately, I've got things that I have to accomplish, and I always, I always related this that when I was a kid, I remember reading <laughs> a book by Dr. Tom Dooley, where he wrote about he was dying, but he was in, I believe, it was Africa, and he was trying to help all these people before he died and he took the name of his book as uh, Before I Sleep. And so I always I
0: always just thought, you know, these are the things I had to accomplish. Anyway, I'm, I, I don't want to press this because um, we'll see what you all come to after we've read a little bit of Frost, but, but there's not a question of mine. And you know how serious I take poetry. Just hold on, when you read it a couple of times again, and if you hear it, you can hear how seductive the scene is. This, you know the particularly the the only other sounds the sweep I hear the I mean the only the only word I know to describe that is seductive it's so siren like so siren like the only other sounds the sweep of easy wind and downy flake the woods are lovely dark and deep but I have promised this is a man who's reached a point and by and by the way. Remember, Frost is these are not we're not to read this stuff as autobiographical. Every artist is creating a poem. We're gonna read a dozen of his poems in the next few weeks. Um, they're not about him. Even if he's had experiences like this, he's he's creating a persona objectively, like like Shakespeare. think about Shakespeare, Macbeth, Othello. They're not all about him, they're about these people but their ability to reveal a character so that we can see something about ourselves in a great poet because they write so often, it's not about him did he have thoughts about suicide? We don't know I can't believe he didn't because they lost their son to suicide, the, the, the wife and he writes one of one of his darkest poems is about a couple losing their son. We don't know it doesn't matter it's not our concern our concern is to read what's here same way as we did last week with the so this is not about frost its frost giving us something very human with these ironies to look at a surface and make us where there's much more going on than very often we see and the great irony of this is this poem turned up in Christmas cards anyway here I'm gonna do this just for you guys just to sort of bring this home a little bit I didn't want to spend the time design I'm gonna read this poem and I'm going to. I'm not gonna comment on it. I'm gonna let you just dwell on it with this other poem okay because one of the f- things that Frost is doing is looking at America God, if any of you watch TV you know that ninety percent of the commercials on television present this world that say come it's sirens if you do this you'll be happy if you do this you'll be happy buy a car do this buy these vitamins Um, If you're a woman, get all these things and be beautiful and you'll be happy. Everything on commercials are siren-like saying do this and you'll be happy. Everybody in America wants to return. What was our founding? It was a pastoral world. The the Puritans left Europe, Catholic Europe, because they thought it was corrupted. They wanted to create another Eden. One of the great myths of the American people is um, what we called um, innocent Adam, the endemic, the Adam myth that men in our country constantly long to return. It's part of our myth as an American people to get away from the corruptions of Europe we came here. And what is suburbia? It's our effort to get back to Eden. So that myth is very strong in the American people, in our psyche as a people. And Froth is a master of it. Anyway, I'm going to read this and let you just meditate, and then I want to get to Francis McComber. Design. So here, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm having, I have because the ironies of this, I've, I've lived with this stuff for long. This is about a, um, a, a simple spider and a moth. What could be more innocent? <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Design, design. Notice the title, design. I found a dimpled spider, fat and white, on a white heel-all, holding up a moth like a white piece of rigid satin cloth. Assorted characters of death and blight mixed ready to begin the morning rite, like the ingredients of a witch's broth. A snowdrop spider, a flower-like froth, and dead wings carried like a paper kite. What had that flower to do with being white, the wayside blue and innocent heel all What brought the kindred spider to that height, then steered the white moth thither in the night? What but design of darkness to appall, if design govern in a thing so small? God, there's that. there's that disclaimer again. Are you guys understanding disclaimers? Everybody, it's, it's uh, what do you call it? Um, insomnia, everybody must have it. Um, the the oven bird, what to make of a diminished thing, birches, um, one could do worse than be a swinger of birches. And now, here, what brought this, the beauty of one and the, something sinister like in the other? Um, what brought the kindred spider to that height and steered the white moth hither in the night? What but design of darkness to appall? If design govern in a thing so small, is everybody hearing the disclaimers? Okay, let's go on. Don't forget this. This is one day after a reason for a celebration. Okay, let's um, let's get back to Hemingway. Um, remember when we did? Pope John Paul's Fide Arantio. When he began Fide Arantio, Pope John, Catholic bishop, or Pope, took us back to a pagan. Who's the leader of Dante for two-thirds of his trip? It's a pagan. It's Virgil. Two-thirds of Dante's journey to heaven could not have taken place without the help of a pagan. And Pope Francis asked everybody in the Catholic world to read that, okay? Beginning of um, Fide Ratio, Pope John Paul took us back to Plato and Socrates and said, the most important thing for all of us in the world is to know ourselves, to find out who we really are. So the fundamental question we should ask is, who am I? How did I get here? Who am I? Can you answer that question about who you are? Who am I? Without asking what your origins are or your end. Where did you come from? Where are you going? That's John Paul, okay? Dante's Commedia begins with Dante, remember, trying to go up that mountain on his own with no help. He gets back, beaten back by those three beasts and we know that each of those three beasts are the levels he's going to face in the Inferno. Remember the lion, the leopard, and the she-wolf? But he begins the, um, the Inferno saying, How hard it is to tell what it was like, this woods of wilderness, savage and stubborn. The thought of it brings back all my old fears. If anybody recalls the awful times in our period, it's sometimes hard to face them, the things we've done. A bitter place, death could scarce be bitter. But if I would show the good that came of it, I must talk about things other than the good. Is there something good to take away from Hemingway? I think there is. We've talked about it. Um, um, he has the kind of truthfulness that we haven't seen since Sophocles and Aeschylus. And you know in Sophocles, Oedipus Rex, Oedipus tears his eyes out. It's a gory story. Name another story is gory where a man rips out his eyes. In the Oresteia, um, Orestes kills his mother to avenge his father. And remember, Homer talks about that in the Odyssey. The Telemachus has to live with the thought, will I have as much courage as Orestes? He's got to go find his father. So every one of those poets had a vision with the depth that it had because they faced awful things. They had to know who they were. So one of the most important things for all of us is to find out who we are. And John Paul in Fede Aratio says, that's the beginning for us. Um, remember that one of the principles that we've been working with in our work in art in learning to read literature we cannot make literature mean something it doesn't mean the principle we, for that comes from st. Thomas truth is the conformity of the mind with things I'll repeat that truth is truth is the conformity of the mind with things for our mind to be good We have to conform it to things. We can't make those things something they're not. If we do that with poetry, what are we going to do in our marriages? Or without children? This is not a small matter for me, you know that. So either I'm reading Frost really badly and you should not forgive me or we need to do some work on Frost. But the fundamental principle is for Thomas to see what is. So when we read stories like Clean Well Lighted Place or it like white elephants or Macomber. Uh, let's take um, clean well out of place. We cannot make those waiters something they're not. The young Raider is arrogant, he's um, insensitive, he's cruel, he slops water on the guy's, the drunk man's thing, he doesn't care, he wants him to go home. Um, when he learns that the guy hung him, or was in the midst of hanging himself when he was saved, he said, should have let him die he's just not very sensitive the older waiter is older he is he's more sensitive he's a better person and it's a it's interesting that Hemingway ends the story with him because he has to go home and sleep it's already middle of the night for him I think it's three or four in the morning he goes home to sleep and he's facing insomnia and he dismisses it many must have it so we know from his words that despair is not uncommon. With Hemingway we have entered the modern world. That's why I chose him after Dostoevsky. So we did Melville, right, and um, Dostoevsky. We're in the middle of a 19th century crisis. Christianity is failing. We did that. We were on that threshold. We were there. We experienced it. Now we are square in the world that we saw coming then. Yeah, and Hemingway's a master at it. I mean, so this is the nada of the modern world. We we might wish it would be different, but here it is. And I can tell you, I don't know what you're. I'm. I'm I don't know. You have to let me know yourself. The first time I read "Clean, Well-Lighted Place," because I'd been a Christian. I mean, I, I'm embarrassed about the middle of my life, but the first time I read that story, I tripped. I could not say the Lord's Prayer and say nada. I mean, I don't know what your experience of when I read it, but it, to speak that, to read that is a little bit like blasphemy. It was just hard for me to read our nada who aren't nada. Um, but in an amazing way, that sort of gives away how bleak the modern world is. Once you deny God, remember the last question that I left you guys with. When you don't even know you're in sin, how do you know the evil you're committing? That's our world. We could wish it were otherwise, but here it is. So, so we've entered a modern world. Okay, um, we have to see things as they are. Okay, um, one of the things that's accounted for our, the shrinkage of our vision, the reductive, the, the reductionist nature of our vision, is that we've lost a metaphysical dimension, a metaphysical, metaphysical dimension of meaning to our life. The the empiric scientist world looks at things as they are only in materialistic terms. Before the modern world, we were in a Christian world and remember when we did Dante, there are four levels of meaning, the literal, the allegorical, tropological, the anagogical. There's a dimension, a metaphysical dimension to everything going on right now. I remember giving this example when we did Dante. There are four levels of meaning always. One of them is metaphysical. We're in a class, we're sitting around, talking about poetry. We're either learning and getting better and moving closer to Christ or moving away. So at one level we're just here, but at another level are we doing what we ought to be doing? Are we living our call? What are we doing? Okay? That's an ontological, a metaphysical level. So even though we're just sitting around, there's another level. Does the modern scientist see it? No, because they deny that metaphysical, it's too spiritual. Freud, Freud acknowledged an unconscious, but it was a somatic, it was a physical unconscious. Freud knew nothing, nothing about the spiritual unconscious. Every great poet we've read <laughs> knows something about the spiritual unconscious, or we wouldn't be reading these guys. So we're in a a world that has shrunk in our vision and it leads a poet to say what to make of a diminished thing? Or does design, does does design govern in a thing so small? (laughs) Is everybody following? The, The meaning of those last lines of frost make them much larger than they seem. It makes us aware there's so much more going on. Do we see it or not? Does design govern in a thing so small? Most people say obviously not. That's what it's just a spider and a moth. Frost leaving us with a question: Is there something more going on? So, so much of what we do depends on our powers of vision. We know that. For Dante, for Saint Thomas, um, the motion of our will, our power to love, begins with our minds. We have Zosimus said this. We have to see the truth if we're going to love it. If we don't know it, it's there. How can we love it? So, we've been learning to deepen our vision. Um, one of the questions that I left everybody with last week was Hemingway, at the beginning of his life, he started out Christian. He was r- raised in a Protestant family. Goes to Europe to France with all the great artists, and they do their work, and he constantly did things. And um, when he married his second wife, who was Catholic, he converted. But um, how active that faith was, we don't know. Um, but one of the amazing things that we learned when we did these um, short stories was everything, everything in his stories means. So take, for example, "Clean, or sorry, Hills Like White Elephants right? Where are they? The setting for every one of his stories. Hemingway came across this middle of his life and then he worked it again and again and again. We see it here in these stories. Every setting speaks. What's the setting of Hills? It's an intermediate place on a railroad line. It perfectly, ca- it, as an image, it perfectly captures that couple. They don't know where they're coming for. They don't know where they're going. They're in this in-between place. Does everybody follow? It exactly images the drama going on in their life. They're at cross purposes. They're lost, spiritually lost. We don't know what's gonna happen. We don't know where they're going. We don't know if that girl's gonna have an abortion or not. Clean, well-lighted place. The setting, it's a bar. It's an analogy for heaven. What is the the real ultimate clean, well-lighted place? For him, anyway. I mean, do you see what he's doing? I mean, he's a master in in hills. The drink, referring to the the seed of the bull, um, licorice sour or bitter. Are you following? Every single image in a story speaks to the meaning, the action. That's exactly what God does. We know that for everything forgotten. Remember, we've taught stones speak when we saw the movie uh, The Departures, or. Um, Archers, right? Yeah. Remember, we talked about stones speak. Everything everything means for God. Hemingway's doing that, and he doesn't believe in God. In a clean, well-lighted place, um, it's a bar, but it gives light for people when there's no meaning in the world. But it's set in a world, a culture in which we know everybody lives in despair. The only place they have to go is a bar to drink. So it's a dark, dark view. Okay. Now, I want to go to um, Macomber, and I'd like to begin with the question now that we've read some anyway. What's the importance of the setting in Macomber?
2: Safari. So they're in nature with dangerous beasts. There's what? They're in nature with dangerous animals. Dangerous beasts, yeah. The animal in them emerges.
0: In them, who?
2: Well, mostly the lady, right? The wife.
0: Both of them. But yeah, everyone really. Yeah. Is everybody following? Is everybody following? Mm-hmm. Hemingway set this in a safari. It's a setting in which um, you're dealing explicitly with a predatory context. Animals attack each other; they're rivals. They kill each other. How how does that help us look at the humans? The humans are rivals to each other. They're, that's the way Hemingway, what Hemingway is doing. This is so important. Hemingway is looking at modern marriage and saying, "Men and women are rivals to each other." L- look what ha- when women enter the workforce and they're now competing with men. How are they not going to be rivals to each other? Hemingway's vision of marriage right now is that this is the modern world, it's Darwinian. The principle is that the fittest of the survival, sorry, the survival of the fittest. Those who are fittest, who who are best, will survive. What does that do sexually to the the relationship between a man and a woman? It makes them rivals to each other. What do we get in this story? They're rivals. They're only together for for self-centered reasons. He's married her because she's beautiful. How true of that is? How man, How true of that is a lot of marriages? How many men marry women because of their beauty? They're trophy wives. They look. They're. 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 What's the beginning of this? The Iliad. This is where we began. Right? Men killed other men to establish their honor, and the highest piece of honor was beautiful women. We're that far away from the Iliad. She loves him, why? Because she loves him for his goodness and she's charitable. (laughs) She loves him for his money. Okay, so are you all following? In every one of these settings, the setting actually is an image of the action going on. The action here is predatory. The men come to kill animals. That's the backdrop so we're getting an image of an impulse a hidden impulse in human beings part of me wants to go back and celebrate a birthday here <laughs> god it, let me stop any questions i'm trusting everybody sees how dark this is any questions or any comments or Mary, yes. I thought something about the
1: wild animals, how they mate, that she left her tent and
0: went over to his tent with <laughs> him. Wait, sorry? I'm sorry, Mary. Say that again.
1: <laughs> animals mating in the wild. Right. And McComber's wife left
0: oh. in the night to mate with the alpha male. Right. Right
1: animals? And other animals. Yeah. Like, yes, the lion is killed and so then the lion is eaten. I, I, just noticed I learned some of that from uh,
0: Lion King. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> You're darker than I am, Mary. Got it. I think I'm pretty dark. <laughs> lion King. God, that's comic. <laughs> Good for you. Okay. Let's take a look at McComber. I'm going to just read through. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, it seems no.
2: like Hemingway, I mean, through, through the guy, what was his name?
0: Wilson. Wilson. Wilson,
2: through Wilson, is saying something specifically about American women,
0: too. Yeah, I want to get to wow. that. <laughs> if, if, <laughs> if, you could, <laughs> if you could hold on, I want to get to that. I, and I'm, I can't tell you, I'm already nervous about asking that here, but I, I'm going to ask it. I had to give this some real thought, but we're going to come to that. Um, let me just go through some of the, the um, story because you know that I want to try to keep um, all that's concrete about it out in front. So here a, a structural question, because it's a good question. <clears throat> the story begins when something has just happened, right? They've come back to camp after um Macomber, and notice what do you what what any thoughts about the name Francis? Oh, huh? Francis of the C-C. Leave the church for a minute. Leave church for a minute. Francis. Well
1: it's it's phonetically it can be either a woman's name or a man's
0: name. Isn't it a somewhat feminine name? Sorry? Yeah, but but it's a it's not a very masculine, and I think, Hemingway, I mean, just again, Hemingway knows what he's doing. Um, they've just come back from a hunt, and McCumber um, has humiliated himself by running from the lion. So, um, Wilson is doing everything he can to sort of get past it, to have drinks and go on, um, because they're going to hunt buffalo the following day. McCumber continues to embarrass himself because he mentions it when Wilson, as a, as a safari guide, knows that those are things you don't talk about. Because what governs him is a spirit of stoicism, male toughness. You tough things out. That's a Hemingway idea. The interesting thing about Wilson is that in some ways he seems like an image of the Hemingway Here He's not, he's not. He's a brutal man and Hemingway knows it. Hemingway's a better man than that. Wilson violates what he does with the slaves. He whips them, he shouldn't. When they shoot the buffalo, they're in a car, they're not supposed to be, and he sleeps with his wife. Mm -hmm. So whatever you say about his stoic maleness, his, your word, your alpha, is that he sees himself as being very manly. He faces death all the time, but he's hard-hearted and cruel. He's got a hard heart, and he brings that to the character. Hemingway knows that. Wilson is doing everything he can to help cover it up, and Macomber is not making anything easy because he does these stupid, embarrassing things and goes back to it. The wife gets more and more embarrassed um, as she hears him, and finally she leaves. Um, ter- well, if you if you've got the your your um, the copy with you, um, at one point McComber says to his wife, "Why not let up in the bitchery just a little, Margot, He says, and Um, I suppose I could, she said, since you put it so prettily. I mean, they now have gotten to a point where they've cracked the surface and they're indirectly talking about what happened even though it's humiliating. Um, She leaves And Macomber keeps going, I'd like to clear away the lion business. He says, it's not very pleasant to have your wife see you do something like that. I should think it would be even more unpleasant to do it. He's more more concerned about what people think than his own character. The prototype for that was Hector. Because remember, when he came to the wall to fight Achilles, he cared more about what people thought than doing something. Achilles did something. So we've got this contrast between men Um, who don't give their wills to something, who are passive, and others who do. Or men who do it for the wrong reasons. They care more about what people think. And women who do the same thing. Um, But right at that point when he goes to bed, he goes to bed and then he starts thinking about what happened and it goes, so there's a shift, a time shift. Now hold on to this for a moment. Remember um, the, the plot begins with all of them returning from the hunt when McCombers embarrassed himself. He goes back to the day before um, and it's embarrassing and at one point in the story uh, in page 8, I, do we, we all, you all got the copy that I have, right? On page 8, they're back the day before um, dealing with the lion and we actually have a point where the the narrator describes the scene from the consciousness of the lion. So McCumber stepped out, this is page eight, he steps out, the lion still stood majestically coolly. There was um, this object that his eyes only showed in silhouette bulking like some super rhino. There, There was no man smell carried. It's describing it until the, the bullet hits him once and then again, and he goes into the, um, the brush to hide. But stop for a second. The narrative begins with the, them returning. That night, McComber is reflecting back, and we get a recollection of the day before. Why is that time shift? He didn't have to do it that way. But it, you know, it's Hemingway as a writer doing that. Why did he do that, do you suppose? What's the effect of that? What's the function of it? But wait, well, sorry. You all know that he could have just done it chronologically, sequentially, right? So that he could have started with that. He could have had the hunt and then gone to the camp. But we don't. We go to the camp, yeah? And then that night, he starts reflecting. We're taking back the day before. Go ahead. Sorry, Mike. The, uh,
1: starting where, the, where he did, uh, puts the, uh, the recollection of his cowardice and his embarrassment front- center
0: in the story. Yeah, anything else? Yeah, go ahead.
2: (laughs) It makes us, when we start in the middle not knowing what's happening, it makes us, we pick up on the strange chemistry of the people and it makes us very curious and wanting to know what happened, what happened, what happened, and he he draws out that tension for a long time and by the time he tells the story we really kind of are fixated on it rather than just starting a story like blah, blah 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 where we wouldn't be we wouldn't be as engaged we wouldn't have
1: anything at stake yet yeah and I think that also because we don't know the rules of hunting so he's making it make making it all more dramatic that that you know you're just running away from the lion you know which I don't know maybe it seems something logical for somebody who's not from there you know it's it, it's you know he's making us see that it's bad because we don't know that it's bad
0: Yep. Remember anybody else? Is this, is this on? Is this on? Can you, is this on? I can I was going to say um, to me, when you're talking about it a day later. Is this on? Ooh, here, here, here. You here. Yeah. Oh. Sorry, Mary. Go. Yeah, and I'm not sure how much it does from a but it does for us. And let me just underscore that. Remember, after Freud, um, the unconscious becomes—it's—it's it's always been a big thing for poets. It's, if you, could, it's there for Homer um, in the underworld, and so, but it's become a big thing scientifically for us in the modern world. When Freud names it, it begins to have a power. Kind of dimension that, that that becomes more a part of a life, and we know that very often when we go through Jane Austen's novels are classic. They they follow the principle of causality. This thing followed by this thing followed by that. so there's a coherence and a sequential order to things. That all gets destroyed in the modern world because for the first time historically we we believe. That very often our psychological experiences are more important. What goes on underneath is more important than anything goes on on the surface. This is going to come to a big question for me in a minute. But isn't that true? You can go through your life and and everything is just going according. You're with a, a work group in an office, and then suddenly you recall a moment back in your past and it jerks you out of where you are because that experience was so painful. So we know that sometimes psychological traumatic experiences can have an effect on us that nobody sees. We can go through our, our daily lives at the office with people, or church, or wherever we are, and deal with people externally and never realize something's going on, something's going on in that person. Mike just talked about something, you may start here that, you know, it's a therapy um, ministry in the church where you're learning to hear people talk about their grievances. How often do we hear, how often do we make a place for those? So it seems to me one of the things Hemingway's doing is showing this is what it's all about. So it does bring a depth. Um, It's, it's the unconscious, I mean, we get it, McComber's reflecting on it, but it interrupts the narrative flow. It's given a much greater importance right now because we're being taken back and we're actually seeing what happened and it's interesting that he takes us into the consciousness of the lion itself. That's another dimension of depth. Um, So, we get the embarrassing moment. It it takes up a good part of the um, center. um, We see the lion come out from hiding and and, um, Wilson start to shoot and when the lion gets close, um, ironically, um, McComber turns and runs. Um, I, I don't know if I've told you this story. I, I have to tell it because it's such a story on me. When I was younger and um, I, I hope <laughs> dumber, more stupid than I am now, and I had this heroic sense of myself and, and good friends of ours asked me if I wanted to accompany him on a, on a night with his two children or maybe his daughter, I can't remember, Dick Bloomer. And, and so I went with him in Yosemite. And it happened to be during a time when there were bear attacks being publicized all the time. People were killed. So I went into the park with him this, you know, for this overnight. We are there for the weekend. Thinking how brave I'd be. God. Thinking how brave I'd be when I saw a bear. God. You know, bears were attacking cars and I'm picturing myself being really brave. The middle of the night, I, I mean, have I told you this story? In the middle of the night, I hear this pecking, peck, peck, something. And I wake up and I see Dick, I think it was Dick and his daughter, Katie, maybe 30 feet away from me or 25 feet. He's throwing pebbles at me to wake me up. And he goes and I look over, and there's a bear on our camping table going through the food. What did I do in my bravery? <laughs> I picked up, yeah, I picked up the sleeping bag, put it over my head, and went down into it. I, 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 I'm, I'm saying to the bear, here, eat me. <laughs> I mean, is there anything more stupid, just a moment of sheer terror took over, and I, you know, I mean, I look back at that, and I think, God, what, you know, what we don't know are the dreams we have about, you know, whatever we can do in ourselves, but... Yeah, anyway. McCumber takes off, for the last place where he should go, you know, for say, Wilson takes him out, but we get that. Shortly after that, Wilson, or McCumber's asleep, and then his wife comes in. Page 12, where have you been? Hello, are you awake? Where have you been? Just went out to get a breath of air. You did like hell. What do you want me to say, darling? I got that. Where have you been? Out to get a breath of air. That's the new name for it. You are a bitch. Well, you're a coward, all right, he said. Is there any clear evidence of rivalry than in this exchange? They're using the failings to hit at each other and to excuse their own. Nothing as far as I'm concerned, please let's not talk darling because I'm very sleepy. You think that I'll take anything. I know you will, sweet. God, it's those darlings and sweets that, it's like a knife twisting. Well, I won't. Please, darling, let's talk. I'm so very sleepy. There wasn't g- going to be any of that. You prom- So she's had affairs before. You said if we made this trip and then w- there would be none of that. You promised. Yes, darling, that's the way I meant it to be. But the trip was spoiled yesterday. We don't have to talk, but you don't wait long when you have an advantage, do you? Please, let's talk on it. Is there any clear evidence of a rivalry? Their wills are set against each other. They're using each other's failings to attack each other. Um, I'm, I'm gonna st- I am want to stop, I want to go to the end because you've read it and you know it, but um, they go out after the bulls, and you remember what happens is that they kill two of them in the car in violation of the laws, they're not supposed to, and one gets um, wounded and, like the lion, seeks shelter, and um, now they have to go after that bull. Um, On page 17, Um, he says, the first bull got up and went into the bush, Wilson said with no expression in his voice. Oh, said McComber blankly. It's going to be just like the lion, said Margo, full of anticipation. It's not going to be a damn bit like the lion, Wilson. Yes, said McComber. He expected the feeling he had about the lion to come back, but it did not. For the first time in his life, he really felt wholly without fear. Instead of fear, he had a feeling of definite elation. We'll go in and have a look. They go in, and you know what happens. That um, Macomber holds his ground. He's firing at the bull, and remember, he's got a horn in front of him, so his bullets are um, are being are being deflected, bouncing off, and the bull's getting closer. But. He, He's elated and he has a courage now. He's felt something he's not done before because he had the courage um, for killing the bull, and he's lived through a courage. He's come to know himself better. Um, page 18, let's please go into the shade, Margo said. His, her face was white and she looked ill. McComber um, wants to go after him. She's white because she's watching her husband do something that terrifies her. It puts him at, at risk. They made the way into the car where it stood under a single white spreading tree and all climbed in. Chances are he's dead. By God, that was a chase, he said. I've never felt any such feeling, wasn't it marvelous, Margaret? I hated it. Why? I hated it, she said bitterly. I loathed it. You know, I don't think I'll ever be afraid of anything again, McCumber said to Wilson. Something happened in me after we first saw the Buffins started after him. Like a dam bursting, it was pure excitement. They go on. He says he'd like to try under the lion. Um, Wilson said, "Good." He compliments him on a good shot, and he quotes Shakespeare um, down towards the bottom. How does it go, Shakespeare? Damn! This is one of the Henry plays, Shakespeare's uh, tetralogy on Henry, Henry one, two, and Henry the Fourth, which is one of the greatest leaders in all of Shakespeare. Probably the greatest king in all of Shakespeare, Henry the Fourth. Damn good. See if I can remember. Oh, damn good. Used to quote it to myself at one time. Let's see. By my troth, I care not. Man can die but once. We owe God a death. Let it go, which way it will. He that dies this year is quit for the next. That's. I'm sure that's from Henry 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 the Fifth. Henry the Fifth. He he brings the Henry the Fourth line to its height. Um, so it's a time of growing up from this young boy that. That women can work on to a man, and she's having to watch this. Um, and then he sights the buffalo and um, starts shooting at it. When the buffalo's rushing, the the bullets are bouncing off. On page twenty. Wilson who was ahead was kneeling, shooting Macomber as he fired on hearing a shot and the roaring of Wilson's gun. saw fragments like slate burst from the huge boss of the horns. and the head jerked. He shot again at the wide nostrils and saw the horns jolt again and fragments fly and he did not see Wilson now and aim carefully, shot him again with the buffalo's huge bulk almost on him and his rifle. So he's not moving. He's not getting up running. Death is imminent. He's facing it. That quote from Shakespeare, he's given up, he has nothing to fear now. It's like he's accepted death. Shot again with a buffalo huge bolt almost on him and his rifle almost level with the oncoming head, nose out, and he could see the little wicked eyes and the head started to lower. He's ready to gouge. And he felt a sudden white hot blinding flash explode inside his head and that was all he ever felt. And we learn what happened is that um, she says she was trying to shoot the buffalo. Wilson has a different take on it. Um, bottom of page 20, Wilson stood up and saw the buffalo in his side, his legs out, his thing heard belly crawling with ticks. Hell of a good bull, his brain registered automatically. A good 50 inches or better. He called to the driver and told him to spread a blanket, and then he turns. That was a pretty thing to do, he said in a toneless voice. He would have left you too. Stop, she said. Of course, it's an accident he said I know that stop it don't worry there will be a certain amount of unpleasantness but I will have photographs taken that will be remember she had something on him because she knew that he whipped the, the servants and he wasn't supposed to and he shot in a moving car so she had something on him and will, Wilson knew it and now he's saying he would have left you Don't worry, there will be a certain amount of unpleasantness, but I will have some photographs taken that will be useful at the inquest. There's the testimony of the gun bearer and the driver, too. You're perfectly all right. Stop it. So, we're to hear something in his tone, besides just, I'll cover you. Okay, because she keeps saying to him, stop it. Stop it. There's a hell of a lot to be done, he said, and I'll have, I'll have to send a truck off to take a wireless for a plane to take the three of us to Nairobi. Why didn't you poison him? That's what they do in, that's what they do in England. Stop, 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 she said. Wilson looked at her with his flat blue eyes. I'm through now, he said. I was a little angry. I'd begun to like your husband. Well, please stop, she said. Please, please stop it. That's better, Wilson said. Please is much better. Now I'll stop. Okay, any last comments about Wilson or Macomber? We've already talked about the setting. We know what the action is, and um, it's a view of marriage. And by the way, I mean, to to sort of highlight the point here, think about a modern marriage and how different it is from a sacramental marriage, from a, a, a couple married in the church in front of the altar in which both of them vow to give up their lives for the other. difference between a modern marriage and this. But any comments on that before I get to some of the more pressing (coughs) questions?
2: I don't think you can limit it to modern marriage. Marriage has (coughs) in most countries and times been a business transaction. Only among Christians is it something other.
0: I'm going to speak a little bit more favorably of it. Um, If we go back to ancient, I mean, let's go back to Homer, 2000. If you go back to marriages in the, in, um, the Old Testament, b- before Christ, w- when there were covenants and men and women had covenants and they ruled. There was still, here, I, I'm, I wanna put this as positively because I, there's an ugly side that can be to marriages. I'm gonna call it romantic love because it's been there from the beginning. It's there in uh, the Odyssey. It's in, it's in pagan works of literature. Um, love between a man and a woman is natural. It's called erotic. It's not charity. It's eros. It's largely physical. So we know that there is an inherent good in a man and a woman when they love, even before Christianity. That romantic love um, is natural to us as humans. It, it, it's. I think it's what guides most of us into marriage, and I even for a Catholic marriage. I think when you first enter it, most of us carry something romantic with us. We tend to idealize each other. Women do it with men, men do it with women. It's just... So let me try to put it on its best foot, even though there are are periods and cultures in which the contractual side of it takes place. But even still, you know, in arranged marriages or contractual marriages, men and women learn to love each other. And that's just a part of our nature. There's something good in us. After Christ, it takes on a much Deeper meaning, because he images a spousal love, the bride, the bridegroom, the bride. Um, so, I mean, but here, it, this is a brutal, brutal marriage, and he's showing. Certainly, I think, in, in in the spirit of the context in which I'm trying to present this in the modern world, we're seeing a marriage that is fundamentally based on a principle of self-preservation and rivalry. She has affairs, he's, he's probably had them. She's using him, he's using her. We we know that goes on a lot and there's probably more encouragement for it to go on today than during, we, we know it went on in Christian, here, courtly romance tradition. The courtly romance tradition was knights favoring a woman. We know that people had affairs, the, men and women had affairs with other people, even in a Christian culture, so. But he, he, Hemingway gives us a very dark, bleak image of marriage, okay? So I want to just, any comments about the two of them, as a man and a woman? And I'm, Let me just focus on her for a minute, because we know that he has a good moment, that there's a change that he undergoes. Um, describe her as a character. What's your response to her? You you were going to say something. Mm-hmm. A couple minutes ago, you had. No? No. Any comments about. Well, she's a really good shot. <laughs> <laughs> she shot across the bank, the stream. Up in the... Is is talented. Talented. I don't know if she was a good shot. Do you think? I mean, was that was that intentional was it unconscious or how do you look
1: she i think she she wanted to be in control she you know of the situation she thought that she had control over him um but he changed
0: yeah so she, now she feels like she she's, she she lost her ground yeah then she moves into another relationship where
1: he's kind of asserting his dominance as well at the end he won't stop talking about it because he knows, knows
0: uncomfortable until so she says please. Sorry, in the last yes, part?
1: Until right. she
0: says please. Oh, Wilson at the end, yeah. 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 Taming yeah. Shrew
2: right
0: there. Right. <laughs> well, I, I think a lot more of Petruccio and taming of the Shrew than I think yeah. of Wilson. I, I, I part of me wants to do that play with you because I think feminists have got it all wrong, but this is no Petruccio. If if, the feminists have very little good to say about Petruchio, but if you I don't want to go there. He <laughs> he is Patricia is really taming through in a best sense. Wilson is cruel yes. and means to be cruel. But
1: when you have that kind of attitude toward marriage, when you leave one person you're gonna find the same kind of person.
0: Yeah, if that's who you are, yeah. Yeah.
2: But Wilson's very different from Francis. I think in this story the wife shows all the masculine characteristics and Francis shows all the feminine characteristics. He's vulnerable and like sensitive and very honest and that makes Wilson contemptuous of him, but also like him at the same time.
0: Well when he changes, because he has nothing but contempt for him earlier, but when he sees him Mm -hmm. stand, he begins to see something good in him. By the way, I hope everybody's seen the American Adam that I was talking about earlier. The, the, the one of the myths of America, that it seems to me it's so deep in our character. Young men who are good-looking, Hollywood has been full of them. You know, I'm Tom Cruise and who's the other guy who's thinking, oh, um, Costner, Kevin Costner. Watch those men grow up in Hollywood. Watch women grow up in Hollywood. But for a moment, watch men. They start out as young Adams. They're so innocent. And then watch what happens to those men and the women. I mean, it's just awful to watch what goes on. But this is just another instance of the of the American Adam, the young Adam who, you know, young and innocent, and and it says at this point that, you know, he's described that way. Wilson looks at him like a young boy, but sees him growing up into manhood, in, you know, in the second day. Let me go to this question, because I, I don't want to duck it but I'm going to ask everybody to be a little bit careful here. Um, it's not a big thing because it seems to me you could take, um, as Alexis said a little bit ago, you could take this marriage as an, as an example of lots of marriages over time. Although I think there's Hemingway, Hemingway makes it peculiar and modern. Remember, we're going to see this in, in Old Man of the Sea. In Old Man of the Sea, we're in a predatory world. The birds eat the birds, the birds eat the fish, the fish eat the birds, they eat each other, humans do the same. The sharks eat the the marlin. Um, It's a dog-eat-dog world. It's a Darwinian world. The principles of the modern world explicitly. Science has determined it. So it must be so. God that um, what governs man is, is self-preservation. The two motivating... So, in the social contract theorists from the 16th century on, 16th, 17th, 18th century, and then followed by Darwin, 19th century, 20th century, the social contract principles are the two governing emotions, instincts, of the human being are pride and fear, We will kill each other in pride. That's, that's, these are social contract. We live in a social contract world. I've said this before, I don't know how it resonates with you, but the social contract means um, we live in a spirit of fear and pride. We want to be better, we use other people, we kill each other, we live in fear. The only way we can get out of that natural condition is to enter into a social contract. I won't do this to you if you don't do this to me. We turn that power over to the government, give the government that power, so we can um, preserve our lives in the spirit of self-preservation. That's governed since 16th century, 17th century. Darwin comes in and it's now self-preservation. It's the survival of the fittest. So science puts its stamp on this. That's, that's our world. So when I look at the marriage, I'm saying it's peculiar marriage because that has all the signs of what's happened in the modern world. So at least I myself would qualify it. I think romantic love has been a part of, you read literature, you know, all literature is full of it. But the modern world is different. We live in a scientific world. Science has established this as a fact. It's not our belief, but science says this. I think there's more to it than science, but Hemingway showing us this world. We'll see it again in Old Man on the Sea. It's a predatory world, okay? So I don't think we should underestimate this. Clean, well-lighted place, hills like white elephant, um, Macomber, the short happy life are all very modern and they're in some ways his best short stories. That's why we've taken the time. But Wilson says at some point um, she's like all American women, and I want to be careful here. Um, he says, "Why don't you do what they do in England?" Because wait, think about that. In in England, women are more proper. And in, in, by by the way, just if there's any question, we're making, we're dealing at a level of generality. So everybody know that we're dealing with generalizations. That doesn't mean there are exceptions, but, but I'm trying to say at a level of generality, so I want to protect all of us. Women in England are more proper. If you look at what's going on in America, we are, we are one of the most violent people in the world. You can't look in the news without seeing women seducing kids and kill, killing children, abortion we present ourselves as being civilized and educated we are a brutal people we are a violent violent people take the mask off and we see underneath the education so we're not like people in Ethiopia or go wherever you want but underneath our education is a real violence so there's some truth to what Wilson's saying in the sense that women in England are proper if they're gonna kill men. they'll be more discreet about it Margot shoots him and we know that the that the um, number of violent crimes committed by women has increased in the last several decades, pretty significantly. So, what do we say? What, at a level of generality, do we um, just say that this is a what do you call it a alpha male? Um, but when he says something, his comment about. I don't remember where it was, American women and, um, but what is there something to that or not, or? Um, it asks for a lot of honesty in two directions. Is there truth to it or not, or, um, or not? What do we do with it? I can't, where, does anybody remember the page? I think it was in the middle of the story, but... But doesn't, does anybody, any comments about that? Um, any comments about? Is there anything in America going on that might encourage women to be more inclined to be violent here or in the West, but particularly America, than in any other country?
2: It's a pioneering spirit. Seriously. I mean... Whole families had to defend the homestead or the covered wagon or whatever. Women had to have rifles. Even in the Revolutionary and Civil War, there were women that fought. It's kind of part of the American individualist...
0: Well, that's the positive side. Can we say anything about the negative side? Because the the focus here is on the negative. Not not the good things that women can say, but are there some things here...
2: Where does it come from that's one source well <laughs>
1: society discourages women from just staying home being nurturing and if you're abandoning that side you're going to get a little more if that's pushed away then you're going to act more like you would expect a man
0: yeah, I remember once saying, when, well let me wait on it, go ahead. Somebody else had a comment or somebody, or Connie? Oh, Chuck or Laurie or, or Melody, go ahead.
1: Oh, well, what, what, you know, it seems to me that our modern culture, for quite a while, has elided the in between men and women, and encouraged
0: women to be more men-like, more feminine values and masculine values yeah, yep. goals
1: as men. Yeah. And, and in, and
0: in the bargain, men. Sorry, say the last thing again. It's hard to hear the volume. Say the last part again, Chuck. Yeah, I say in the bargain, the attention a the emasculated men finished men. A bargain? Did say what? sorry?
1: They emasculated men.
0: Yeah, I mean this is certainly a castrating, emasculating sort of act on her part. Yeah, Any anything else? Hey, let me ask it this way, I mean, to put the, put, because in a Catholic world, you, you, the, the image, I mean, Christ is not feminine. You know, and he can be really harsh at times. He's pretty severe in a lot of his parables. Um, Mary is held up as the apostle for men and women. Um, women can give birth. There is something naturally Women by nature are nur- have the nurturing capacity. I mean, to follow Chuck's point, because I think it's a good one. What ha- in, in our world, I mean, I, I want to be careful here because we can get too broad. What happens when we do away with our own nature? What do we replace it with? I mean, look at the trans today and all that's going on by, by people denying that they're men or women and trying to just artificially change themselves. What happens when a woman has no reason or is less reason for being nurturing according to her nature than has always been traditional true. What will happen? <laughs> Wait, because well, if you go back to the very beginning, women have never lacked a capacity to be violent. Ever. Go back to Homer's world. I mean, the violence there, Medusa, and the Furies, and remember the Orestia. I mean, women can be really vicious. Mm-hmm. So it's not like this is particularly new, but the question we're asking today is, you know, in light of Wilson's comment about. Alexis, go ahead, sorry.
2: Usually two things happen um, when a woman rejects her femininity either she becomes promiscuous by throwing it away, or she becomes hardened and bitter. And I was just trying to think of the time period that this had happened, and you had, you know, women's suffrage and temperance movement and so those early seeds of femininity sort of and they both presented themselves as armies kind of fighting yeah fighting Mm -hmm. like soldiers yeah um i found the quote about american women if you want to it's on page four
0: go ahead just okay make it brief because i want to
2: Okay, Wilson says, they are, he thought, the hardest in the world, the hardest, the cruelest, the most predatory, and the most attractive, and their men have softened or gone to pieces nervously as they have hardened. Or is it that they pick men they can handle? They can't know that much at the age they marry, he thought. He was grateful that he had gone through his education on American women before now, because this was a very attractive one.
0: Good, okay. Mike, did you, you had something.
1: Oh well. Oh your question back to marriage. I uh, think the, the uh, uh, fatherless households, for a woman to grow up in a fatherless household changes her in
0: yeah. ways that, yeah. uh, yes.
1: that uh, she wouldn't She wouldn't be put, uh, she would not change in those ways were she in a household with two uh, with both positive, mm-hmm. male and female. World yeah,
0: world. and just take the correlative of that, too, what it means for a young boy to grow up without a father. Um, I mean, the, 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 and, and that's that's not a small problem. I mean, I, 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 we don't have time. If we had time, I would take this more in the direction of a Protestant worldview, from the beginning, and the dangers of that. Because in, in, in a Catholic world, there's a natural hierarchy. We've got a pope, It's understood that in the family, there's a hierarchy. Um, Take that away, and a family gets opened up to do anything. But um, where is it going to go? If you elevate the private will, this is true for a Protestant world, the the private will becomes an arbiter. Every man and woman is arbiter for themselves, so that a woman is isolated and has that power. I mean, uh, to me, one of the great grievances of our modern world is abortion. And you can say a lot of things about women. That's the tip of an iceberg. Imagine all that's going on in marriages underneath that that we're not seeing. But my question isn't just about the women. Where are the men in those relationships? They don't exist. The private will, when it gets elevated, take a woman's nature away from her. We live in a really dark, dark time. And I don't. I think it's even. I think it's got to be harder for a Catholic. Because a Catholic is asked to give up his and her, both, a man and a woman, on the altar, give up your life. When everything about this world says, have what you want, have your will. If it means killing a child, kill it. Well,
1: to a much less degree, but when I got married, it didn't matter what church you belonged to, you got married in the church. Uh, Now, I mean, we've been to weddings in so many venues, it's rare to have a church wedding uh, We're going in November to a relative's wedding in a brewery. Now, all my friends say, "Oh, how fun is that?" My thought is that that really says something to
0: me. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel the same way, and just <laughs> particularly if you watch divorces, if, if you take your vows lightly, as people are encouraged today, mm-hmm. how much help do you have? hold on to a marriage when things go rough if you enter into it innocently or romantic too romantically thinking "Oh, it's nice and quaint when you have to deal with hard things what do you do if it has that lightness in the beginning what holds you I mean what holds a Catholic presumably is a cross even though none of us wants to face it so there's a lot going just remember we did this with Melville we did it with Dostoevsky in Dostoevsky we were watching a um a european dimension of enlightenment ideas beginning to work on russia and we could we were seeing the effect on couples couples lived in their emotions the governing passion i would say in brothers karamazov is pity it's not love it and it's most imaged in ivan in his pity for the you know although it, it spread through the whole thing in the western world we have a um Courtly romance tradition, you know, that honors the woman because because she's more vulnerable. She can have a child; a man can't. There's a vulnerability to the to a nature the feminist doesn't want to admit. It's one of the reasons I think they have such a hard time with the body, and that's factored out today. But there's always been in the West in a Christian tradition, even the pagan, going back to Homer and Virgil that there's a special place for a woman because she can have a child. Take that away and the continuity of civilization is lost. I love that. I mentioned it when I was talking about theology of the body, when they did that talk. His description he said, a woman, I was wonderful to hear, a woman can bring into existence an immortal soul. How many women feel the value of that? Against anything, they, anything that can make them money or you know fame or to bring into existence an immortal soul. How much does that govern men and women today in their view of marriage? So it's a dark, dark world we've entered. And it's not, it's not one that we like. It's one I think I'm assuming most of us struggle to deal with particularly with our families, our kids, because of the world they're growing up in. Um, This is our world. I want to leave it here, but here I want to end with this question because I'd hope to get to um, Old Man of the Sea. Let me stop here. The reason for choosing Hemingway is because in so many ways he's an extraordinary writer. I hope everybody sees that. The amazing irony for me is he's doing in his story what God does. There is nothing going on in his story that does not have meaning. That's like a that's like a product of a Christian worldview, and yet he doesn't believe in God, and we're seeing the dark effects of it. Get God out of the way. You've got hills like White Elephants. You've got abortion. You've got a clean white light of state. bars is your only home. That's the closest thing to heaven. A clean white well. I love that title. The <laughs> more lighted place. Take heaven away. The closest thing you've got. Where does everybody go to? I know this. You know this. Our son is, is a manager at Kirby's. There are people who go to Kirby's three times a week. They don't have a home. I mean, I, I look at that with real affection, you know, that they have a place that that gives you, that leaves you with a community. They're not just there for a bar, they're there for meals. But they, they they don't have homes today.
1: Is Kirby's clean and well lighted? Yeah.
0: <laughs> I'm not even gonna, I'm not even gonna use it because I, because because I think better of my son and what he's doing in Kirby's than I think of what's going on in this, you know, in this bar, but... And you've got a, you've got, um, a predatory context in Hills Like White Elm, or, yeah, or Short Happy Life of um, Francis McCormick. We've read three stories that give us a very dark view, and I think a very faithful view of humanity. It's very much about our... so I'm hoping that everybody sees the truth of it. It's like Dante. How do we deal with our world if we don't see the truth of things? These are dark poems because they come out of a dark time. In 1953 Hemingway writes Old Man on the Sea for which he gets the Nobel Prize. My question to you is when you, I'm assuming you all started it, how is Santiago different? How is this story, I'm, this is a very serious question. Faulkner said of this work, Hemingway finally discovered God. Um, Santiago, Santiago is a very different figure from any figure we've experienced in Hills or Well-Lighted Place or Macamber. How do we describe this work? Is God present? What's happened? How is this story different from the first three stories we've read? Because we're not in Homer's world where the gods show up, you know, <laughs> engaging. Is God present? It's, uh, here, let me put it even better. Um, Whose woods these are, I think I know. I think he's in the village though, I mean. Suicide, are you kidding Dr. Alexander? Get real. That's not about suicide. Um, Do we see things as they are? There's no God making any appearance in old man of the sea. Is he present? Show me where. (laughs) Okay? So when we meet, um, we'll spend, we're going to have to spend, uh, extend, we'll spend two weeks. Next week, we'll, we'll do the first half of Little Man in the Sea, and the following week we'll do the second half, okay? We're watching a strange thing happen, that we're in the middle of the century, and the influence of Freud and Darwin and Marx, which is still with us, it seems as if those ideologues are dying out. Something else is happening. So um, I can't, so Old Man of the Sea, we're going to do Faulkner's Go Down Moses, and I can't tell you how much I'm looking forward to it because I want to set it against Melville, um, um, Moby Dick, because remember it's about Ishmael. Go Down Moses is about Isaac, the chosen one. So we're very close to something happening. And you're not going to find anywhere in Europe, these things. Go down, or Moby Dick. That's not European, that's American. It's an extraordinary story. And go down Moses is Faulkner. It's an extraordinary story. Um, So something's about to take place, and we're going to enter into it with um, Old Man of the Sea and see what's going on in our world, Okay. Okay. See you guys next week. Doc, you t- that.